I know, I know. I said the Sustainable Futures Report would be monthly from now on. But there's just so much going on. So this is Anthony Day with a third episode of the Sustainable Futures Report for July 2018. It's Friday the 27th. On the energy front, there are reports from the National Grid, from the National Infrastructure Commission and from the Climate Change Committee in the UK. And in Canada, there is a report from the federal government. On the climate change front, we have been enjoying an unprecedented heat wave here in the UK, although by the time you hear this, it'll probably be raining. The grass turns yellow, we need to take action, so I've included an update from Cape Town, the city that was going to run out of water in April. At the other extreme of extreme weather, torrential rain has caused floods in Nepal, Japan and China. Some 200 people have died as a result in Japan. UK supermarket Morrisons have turned retail on its head with reverse vending machines. Remember I featured them a, a while ago? I'll remind you what they are later on. And finally, are you in the loop? That's the Hyperloop, developed by Elon Musk and eagerly supported by Richard Branson of Virgin. More on that later as well. Before all that, I have a new patron. Welcome to Mark Rutherford, and many thanks to all my other patrons who contribute a small amount to help me pay for the hosting of the Sustainable Futures Report. If you'd like to join their number, just hop across to patreon.com slash sfr, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr, where you'll find all the details. Here's a press release. Britain has a golden opportunity to switch to greener ways of providing energy to homes and businesses without increasing bills, but only if ministers act now to make the most of it. That's a key finding from this month's National Infrastructure Assessment, the first ever for the UK, published by the National Infrastructure Commission. The Commission was set up in 2015 as an executive agency of the Treasury by George Osborne. Remember him? The National Infrastructure Assessment looks at the United Kingdom's future economic infrastructure needs up to 2050 and makes key recommendations for how to deliver new transport, low-carbon energy and digital networks, how to recycle more and waste less, and how future infrastructure should be paid for. It aims to ensure the UK is fully prepared for the technological advances that could transform how the country operates. According to the report, the UK must take decisive action to have world-class infrastructure. I imagine a prerequisite for that would be a decisive government. Enough said. The report's core proposals include nationwide full-fibre broadband by 2033, half of the UK's power provided by renewables by 2030, three-quarters of plastic packaging recycled by 2030, £43 billion of stable, long-term transport funding for regional cities. Preparing for 100% electric vehicle sales by 2030. That's at odds with the present policy of permitting petrol and diesel car sales right through until 2040. Ensuring resilience to extreme drought through additional supply and demand reduction. A national standard of flood resilience for all communities by 2050. It also highlights the most important future challenges. Heating must no longer be provided by natural gas, a fossil fuel. 
That's very interesting because earlier this month I was at the Energy Efficiency Awards where I was strongly advised by people on my table to replace my gas boiler with an air source heat pump. They said I could power it from my solar panels or from energy stored in a battery. If there was no sun I could charge my battery overnight using the cheap rate Economy 7 tariff and use the power during the day when electricity direct from the grid is at its most expensive. The UK must prepare for connected and autonomous vehicles. These need more time for evidence or technology to develop. The assessment sets out the actions needed to enable robust decisions to be taken in future. Is the government listening? At the moment, no, because it's consumed with infighting over Brexit. There is a serious chance that it will have fallen by the end of the year, and the national squabble will continue. Did someone say fiddling while Rome burns? In the UK, the National Grid has just published its future energy scenarios. These scenarios outline different credible pathways for the future of energy for the next 30 years and beyond. They consider how much energy we might need and where it could come from. They look at what the changes might mean for the industry, customers and consumers. It's interesting that on the very front page it says that gas will remain crucial for both heating and electricity generation in all scenarios for the coming decades. It does talk about decarbonisation and it does talk about hydrogen, a clean gas, at least at the point of use. But many people believe that natural gas use must be minimised as soon as possible. Using it as a bridge fuel will prolong its use and inhibit the development of renewables. Admittedly, that's my initial reaction to the executive summary. The scenarios cover a set of detailed documents and deserve close reading. Of the four scenarios described, two achieve the UK's 2050 carbon reduction targets and two do not. Main points highlighted. We are entering a new world of energy. The expected growth of low carbon and decentralised generation means the electricity system will need to change. Electric vehicle growth goes hand in hand with electricity decarbonisation. Smart charging and vehicle-to-grid can actively support the decarbonisation of electricity. Action on heat is essential and needs to gather pace in the 2020s to meet carbon reduction targets. A mix of low carbon heating solutions and better thermal efficiency of buildings is needed. Gas will play a role in providing reliable, flexible energy supplies for the foreseeable future. New technologies and sources of low-carbon gas can decarbonise the whole energy sector. The executive summary is designed as a five-minute read, and I recommend you have a look at it. Find the link on the blog. And here's another report. This one's from the Committee on Climate Change. Apply the lessons of the past decade, it says, or risk a poor deal for the public in the next. It continues, ten years after the Climate Change Act came into force, the Committee on Climate Change says the government must learn the lessons of the last decade if it is to meet legally binding targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the 2020s and 2030s. Unless action is taken now, the public faces an unnecessarily expensive deal to make the shift to a low-carbon economy. Scientific evidence of a changing climate continues to mount. Recent observations have catalogued evolving changes to the climate in the UK and around the world, highlighting the need, the urgent need, for further measures to reduce harmful emissions. It's all about energy this time, 
A brief follow-up to my report about the Trans Mountain Pipeline in Canada. The federal government has just published its Generation Energy Council report, which envisions a roadmap for Canada's energy future. For the first time ever, says the press release, Canada has aligned its energy vision with its commitment to tackle climate change, marking an important moment. Merrin Smith, Clean Energy Canada's executive director and co-chair of the council, said, if we follow the pathways laid out in this report, Canada can succeed in ensuring that Canadians have access to affordable, reliable, clean energy, and that we can sell our solutions to the world. In some places, Dilbert is a cartoon character. In Canada, Dilbit is diluted bitumen. It's what they plan to pump through the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and it's far from a joke. It's the fossil fuel they're planning to sell to the world. Some cognitive dissonance there, I think. Find the links on the blog, sustainablefutures.report. With this very hot weather, I can't help thinking about Cape Town in South Africa, which was preparing to run out of water completely back in April. In May, they were even talking about towing in an iceberg from the Antarctic. Actually, the city didn't run out of water, but very strict measures were imposed to make the best of what they had. And that still goes on. Apparently, about the time when they thought they would run out, there was some rain, which made an immediate difference. But the main difference was made by people drastically cutting consumption. Consumers are currently allowed 50 litres of water per adult per day and nothing at all for children. If they run the water in the shower until it gets hot, they collect the water in a bucket and they use it to flush the loo or water the garden. In any case, they are urged to limit showers to no more than 90 seconds. Get wet. Turn it off. Apply soap. Turn it on and rinse. Doesn't everyone shower like that? No baths. Hotel guests are urged to reuse towels to save the laundry water, obviously. Report leaking taps. Use a dishwasher because it uses less water than washing up in the sink, but only run it when it's full. Same applies to clothes washers. Householders in South Africa have installed storage tanks, which they will presumably fill with rainwater and use for things like washing clothes and watering the garden if they must. Lessons for us all here. Even though water is short, in the present heatwave, it's always wise to drink plenty of it. Cape Town is holding its own, but as climate change and global temperatures increase, things can only surely get worse. Still, according to the Tourist Board, Cape Town is no longer at risk of running out of water this year or next. Are you old enough to remember the Lamson pneumatic tube system in department stores? You took what you wanted to buy to an assistant and handed over your money. They filled out a bill and put it with the cash into a canister about the size of a tin of beans, opened a little door in the wall and dropped it in. You could hear a loud sucking noise and it rattled away down the tube to some distant cash desk where change was calculated, the bill was receipted and the canister was sent back. After a few minutes it popped out of a little door in the tube which slammed shut behind it and it crashed into a basket behind the counter. I often wonder how they made sure the right canister always went back to the right counter. Anyway, 
Elon Musk's Hyperloop is much the same, except that it's somewhat bigger and the pods are designed for carrying people or goods, not just cash and bills. Hyperloop is designed to link cities. While Hyperloop depends on creating a vacuum in front of the canister, as with the Lamson system, that's by no means the whole story. The tube is evacuated to thin the air and thereby minimise the drag on the pod. The idea is to create an atmosphere as thin as the air at 200,000 feet. The pod will actually be driven by magnets. It'll be a maglev train suspended in a magnetic field within the tube. And with the rarefied atmosphere, it'll travel at about 600 miles an hour. A Hyperloop pod will take passengers from London to Edinburgh, 400 miles, in just 50 minutes. A recent article by the Institute of Directors lists 10 reasons why the UK should take Hyperloop seriously. You can read it via the link on the blog. I'm not convinced. We're at the very early stages of constructing HS2, a high-speed conventional railway, and some people have serious doubts about that. Hyperloop would surely make HS2 obsolete. And what will Hyperloop cost? Given that in a crowded country like the UK, it will have to be almost totally in deep tunnels. What about the carbon footprint of the construction process? Where will we get enough magnets to create a 400-mile maglev line? And that's only for phase one. How much electricity will it take to evacuate the tube and drive the 600-mile-an-hour pods? Will enough people want to go to Edinburgh in less than an hour? And will they be able to pay enough to make the project viable? What about those people who don't live in London or in Edinburgh? And won't the telephone, Skype and conference calling be very much cheaper alternatives in many cases? Read the IOD article and make up your mind. But quite apart from all that, when people can take all day waiting for buses to take them to and from the hospital or down to the shops, when commuter trains are overcrowded by a factor of 150% or more, yes, that's 150% on top of the design capacity, when new timetables have led to through train services on some routes being suspended indefinitely, and when the privatised East Coast Main Line has collapsed into public ownership for the third time in 10 years, haven't we got more important issues to consider than superfast travel for the wealthy few? The great engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel built an atmospheric railway powered by vacuum in Victorian times. It worked with speeds of up to 70 miles an hour, but it failed because of rats. But that's a story for another time. Yes, reverse vending machines. Morrisons have installed some in a couple of locations, only a couple, so there may well not be one in a store near you, for the moment at least. These machines are collection points for your bottles and cans. You insert them into the machine and they are automatically sorted into glass, plastic or metal. The plastic and metal bottles are crushed and guided into separate containers. The glass bottles go into a third container, without being crushed. Now, while it is a reverse vending machine, you don't actually get your money back. But you will get a voucher to spend in store, or there may be an option to donate your refund to the charity. Let's hope we see more of these machines soon. I've been on talk radio again. A new report claims that the human population is adapting to climate change. Well, not exactly. 
Apologies, some of the sound quality on this is not as good as it should be. Right now we can speak to Anthony Day, presenter of the Sustainable Futures Report, because, of course, uh, human populations, we are now being told, may already be adapting to climate change, new research suggests. Anthony, very good morning to you. Good morning. I suppose, uh, if anything, uh, humans are very adaptable people, and uh, so therefore when something does change in their environment, uh, they adapt to it. Well, yes, that, that's probably true. But I must pick you up on that headline, which said human population adapting to climate change. Yeah. Uh, it would be great if it was true. But if you read the report behind it, it's not saying that at all. Okay. It's just saying that some people in Spain are coping with um, the hot weather better than they used to a few years ago. Okay. It's so not they're... talking about the whole of climate change and it's not talking about the whole uh, human population either. Okay. So what's the rest of the human population doing? Uh, well, it's suffering, certainly. It's suffering from the heat, and it's suffering from the effects of the heat. And the effects of the heat are not necessarily drought, because if you look at Japan, the heat, the extra energy in the atmosphere has led to catastrophic floods, and uh, 200 people have been killed as a result uh, of that. And at the other extreme, of course, this ex uh, extra heat has caused wildfires, and it's all over the news today in Greece. Seven yes. people, I think. No, indeed. And I mean, funnily enough, I had a conversation with a, a meteorologist just the other day because I said, you know, we are seemingly getting to be a much hotter country now than we were mm -hmm. uh, because that's the kind of perception because I seem to remember a lot of hot days last summer. But he said, in yeah. fact, that's not true. And last summer, it actually was very wet and it actually wasn't very warm at all. So the mind can sometimes play tricks on you, can't it? Well, yes, but if you look at every year since 2000, uh, every year apart from two, I think, um, has been hotter than the year before. So you're right, the trend is it's getting hotter. Yeah, it feels that way, certainly. Mm. But, I mean, let's, mm. let's talk about this study from Spain then. So what exactly have they found? Well, what he did was, um, he was a professor at Barcelona University, he looked at the records for 30, the last 36 years, he looked at death rates, and he looked at the weather. And he found a trend that when things got hotter, more people died. Right. Except that in recent years, he found that that trend had changed and fewer people than you expect died when weather got hotter. And why so was that? Well, his conclusion was that Spanish people were adapting to hotter temperatures. Uh -huh. But that's completely opposite to a study which was done uh, in America. Um, a professor of earth science at Stanford University looked at suicide rates. And he found that suicide rates rise when the temperature rises. Yeah. And his conclusion was, uh, from his research, that by 2050, because the planet is warming, the United States is going to see 26,000 uh, extra suicides, which is very very morbid, isn't it? Well, it is very morbid, but the only thing it proves to me is that you can't trust any of these researchers because they all come up with bits, bits of information which are kind of part of the picture, but not the whole picture. And you really need, I suppose, in the round to get as many pieces of research as you possibly can, don't you? Yeah, and you need to read the research in detail. And I fear that journalists quite often just read the first lines and there's a great story and they make a headline. That sounds like really a what dreadful going. slur on all journalists, I have to say. However, uh, all I'm telling you is that when I was given my piece of information to read this morning, it said people may be learning to cope with climate change, says research. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yes. Which is which is the which is the, which is the which is the conclusion of this Spanish uh, this Spanish research? Which which so they I mean they've suggested that, uh, but you're saying yeah. you disagree yeah. with it because it's not really a uh, a big enough survey survey. Well, they only spoke about Spain, yeah. so yeah, it's absolutely true about people in Spain, but we have not got the evidence at the moment for people elsewhere. And as I say, in the states, there's a guy to come up with this study which suggests the opposite.
might be true. Yeah, well, indeed. And that's the thing. Might is, I suppose, the difficulty. I mean, I think that in the end, I mean, you just have to look around the city of London or Manchester or, or Glasgow. You know, when things get hotter, you know, we behave slightly differently, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, so, therefore, we are adapting. Yes, yes, but there are some things we can't adapt to. We can't adapt to wildfires. We can't adapt to rising sea levels uh, and floods. And we can't adapt to things like the torrential rain they had in in Japan. And incidentally, we're expecting torrential rain and thunderstorms in this country on Friday. Uh, On on the weekend, I'm told, yeah. But again, I mean, I've spoken to three or four different meteorologists and and they all have different views of whether that's going to happen or not. That's the problem. It's, it's, it's It's not an exact science, unfortunately, is it? No, 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 I don't they claim it, uh, it's an exact science. I mean, we're looking at trends which, which play out over decades. Yeah. But, you know, if you look over the last 10 years, there is a clear trend, certainly in terms of warming. Yeah, no, no question. And then, and then sometimes that can be a good thing. For example, you know, we now, as, as, we, as was predicted some years ago, uh, they said, oh, you'll soon be having vineyards in the north of Scotland. I mean, we've certainly got vineyards in Kent now, uh, which produce mm-hmm. a rather nice wine. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, farmers are saying they can't grow carrots anymore. Well, they're saying that today, uh, but they're not actually saying they can't grow them anymore. I think you'd be slightly, uh, you know, the one thing, if you're going to start having a go at journalists for being uh, not good at their research, you're now uh, alarmist, and that's the sort of thing you do. Well, okay. Uh, No, it's not the sort of thing I do at all. Well, Um, you've just said farmers said they can't grow carrots anymore, which is not what they've said. All right, yes, fair enough. Uh, They're they're not growing them this year. Right, okay. But, you know, if the temperature increase to the levels that you can start growing uh, wine in the north, then... At the same time, it'll be very difficult to grow carrots. Yes, indeed, it will. But listen, thank you very much indeed, Anthony. Anthony Day there, who is a presenter of Sustainable Futures Report. He's a bit worried uh, about the heat. And that was Mike Graham on Talk Radio with the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. That's it for another episode. I'm Anthony Day, and thank you for listening to the Sustainable Futures Report. I hope you all have a great summer, and you know what? I'm going to take August off. Yep, this is the last episode before September, so look out for the next Sustainable Futures Report on Friday the 7th of September. Once again, a big thank you to all my patrons, old and new, for helping to make the Sustainable Futures Report possible. And thanks in particular to my newest patron, Mark Rutherford. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. See you in September. Thank you.